Thank you, Greg. Thank you, gentlemen. Bow with me. Father, we are mindful that your word was given to us for a purpose. You desire to impart your truth to us. I pray, Father, we would listen. We would hear. And we would live accordingly. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and do your work in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Jack, Mr. Pink, Nick. I'm assuming we're all here tonight because of my invitation to Dr. Samuel Proctor to speak this Sunday. Why would you do this, Vernon? I got people coming into my store asking me what kind of ship we're running here. Want to know, did we really invite a Negro preacher to stand in our pulpit? And what did you tell them, Jack? I told them they heard wrong. Ain't no Negro professor speaking in our church on Sunday. Vern, uh, nobody's saying that it's perfect here, but uh, we've, we've got good relations with the, with the Negro community. It just might not be time to, to stir things up. Well, what time is a good time, Dick? A year from now? What, five years from now, Doug? Does that sound about right once your boys graduate high school? Ten years from now? Heck, this is starting to sound like work. Why don't we just leave it for the next generation to fix? If this man speaks on Sunday, there will be a breach that will split this congregation. Is he worth tearing this church apart over? You, uh, you can end this with one call, Vernon. Just uh, call him and tell him don't come. We're living beneath a dam, gentlemen. A dam that's holding back 300 years of wrong. Now you can say that dam ain't going to break all you want. But when the rains come, and that dam bursts open, and all that's bad comes flooding out, you won't have time to run for high ground. Now is the time. That's why I invited him. And that's why I'm not making that phone call. Well, that's all well and good, Vernon. But this is our church, and you don't have a right to do this. Well, actually, Jack, I do. And you gave it to me. This is the Methodist Book of Discipline. It defines the rules that govern our denomination. And it says, The pastor of this church can determine the number and the nature of services held in the sanctuary. And for the moment, I am still the pastor of this church. Now, if you see things differently, you give Bishop Grayson Tullis a phone call. And you let him know. Otherwise, I have a job to do tomorrow, gentlemen. I hope to see you all there. Conflict within the church. Something unusual? Uh, Rare? Well, not really. Uh, this uh, involved a pastor and uh, an issue over racism. 
You have to give this pastor credit, don't you? For standing up to such a thing. It's a true story. A southern town. And it's told through the eyes of his son. This pastor did lose his church. And that dam did burst. And it destroyed the town. What had been an economic hub is now Podunk, USA. Not all battles are this cut and dried, though. And most don't involve the pastor. Some do, but most don't involve the pastor. They involve the lay people of the church, those who, for whatever reason or other, can't get along. Power struggles. Who's going to be more important? Who is going to get their way? Whose preference is going to control? The color of the carpet? The style of music? Whether the pastor is going to wear a tie or not, or a suit. Don't you think we ought to have Pastor Matt in a suit every Sunday? No? (laughs) Whether or not the flowers up front are real or fake. One of my seminary professors uh, with a voice of experience in the pulpit warned us that if you're going to go into ministry, choose your battles wisely. Make sure they're worth dying over. Uh, I say, uh, with a world of experience, he died over some battles he shouldn't have. But he did learn from it. All too often, uh, these uh, conflicts are nothing more than uh, over trivialities. Conflicts unworthy. Still, they form the seedbeds of disorder and uh, divisiveness and, and conflict. Fact is, none of this is all that unusual. I know many of us have an idealistic view of how things ought to be in the church. But guess what? Our idealistic views are often just blind, utopian assumptions. Churches have conflicts. Some right, some wrong. Not some churches. All churches have conflicts. Some... uh, of a lesser degree, some of a major degree. But all churches have conflicts. This is where James takes us this morning. He is, as we have consistently seen, confronting problems in real life. He's still confronting problems in real life. He's seen it in his churches, the churches that he's in contact with. 
I might also mention at the outset, he's still dealing with the issue of what does it take to live a holy life. What does it mean to live a life of faith? That's his point throughout his whole book. What does it mean to live a life of faith? And if you miss that, you're going to miss the importance of everything he has to say and why he's saying it. What does it mean for you and me to live a life of faith? We all know what it means to live a life of the flesh. The flesh comes naturally to us. It's easy. It suits us. But James is showing us another way. A way of faith. Not a natural way. A supernatural way. Why is there divisiveness in the church? That's James' starting point here in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Notice James assumes the presence of problems. He doesn't say if, on a perchance. I know it's slim, but he says what causes fights and quarrels among you. He doesn't have to question the, the, whether contentiousness is present or not. It's a given. So he simply addresses the problem. This is a huge juncture for us to arrive at, a, a starting point. You see, without ever realizing this basic fact, it's probably never going to be corrected. You have to realize a problem before you can fix it. A few years ago, I picked up a book with a provocative title. It was written by an evangelist named Tom Skinner. Here's the title. If Christ is the answer, what are the questions? If Christ is the answer, what are the questions? Isn't that a great title? James is addressing one of those questions right here, right now, for you and me. Hey, church, where do your disagreements come from? Maybe we need to personalize it, huh? Hey, Valley Community Church, where do your conflicts come from? Most of us might miss it, but James is asking a diagnostic problem. He's not being accusatory. It's a question given to diagnose the problem and therefore enable therapy. It's meant to be healing. It's meant to be redemptive. James usually doesn't beat around the bush. We've seen this again and again, haven't we? So the answer appears in the next sentence. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Everything keys off those two words, your desires. You want to impose your desires on the church. Now the word desires ought to rattle our cage. Uh, The root word is the same word we get hedonism from. 
That ought to be telltale, don't you think? Think it through. Hedonism. The uh, all-consuming pursuit of pleasure. A a sensual self-indulgence. And this is what people are wanting to impose on the church. Their desires. What they think the church ought to be and how it ought to play out. Hedonism. It's a a problem in our culture. And I might say progressively so. Each year it takes a bigger chunk out of who and what we are. Continually it's burrowing its way into our lives. Our expectations for life. The word desires appears a number of times in Scripture, and guess what? It's always negative. There is no good side to it. And you would probably expect that if you realize that it's connected to the word hedonism, wouldn't you? There's no positive side to desires. Our desires, your desire, my desires. Now that might seem strange. Almost implausible. At least uh, as our world sees desires. Everybody has desires. They're natural. We have a right to them, don't we? In fact, they form the basis of who we are. How we intersect with life. That may be what the world teaches. But it isn't true. And this is exactly James' statement here. It's his statement in the previous passage. Remember in the previous passage where James James talks about uh, earthly wisdom? Glance back at it with me. It's good to have a a full picture of the entire context, don't you think? Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his, his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Some of us are proud of it, see? And others, we want to hide it, but we're still going to promote it. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and look at that, of the devil. It's satanic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace Raise a rich harvest of righteousness. Personal expectations, personal desires are always negative. And you and I, in our point in history and in our culture, ask, how can that be? Such a concept is is almost beyond the average American's comprehension. 
How can that be? We live in a society that is squarely built on personal desires, personal expectations, personal wants. In fact, America is built around the philosophical premise that that individual pleasure is the chief aim of life. Everybody can do their own thing, have their own fun, be their own person, believe whatever they want to believe. In fact, uh, our understanding of uh, pluralism guarantees it, doesn't it? And this philosophical premise has, has followed people right into the church. It's ingrained in our character and it follows us right into our faith. So much so that it largely defines our life in Christ. There is little or no acknowledgement that we belong to God. Bought and paid for by the shed blood of Jesus. We sang about it this morning, didn't we? As believers, we exist for His glory. That acknowledgement is basically absent in the lives of believers today. We exist for His glory. Worldly wisdom says it's all about me. Godly wisdom says it's all about Him. Worldly wisdom says I deserve my desires. Godly wisdom says He died to save us from our desires. Pretty evident, isn't it, why, uh, according to Scripture, the word desires is decidedly negative? And we who are in Christ need to recognize it for what it is. Otherwise, we condemn ourselves to a, 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 a tragic, godless fate. We're going to talk about that fate uh, at the end of the, end of the uh, uh, section. But just note it for now in connection to what we're talking about here. We condemn ourselves to a, a sad, tragic fate. So while the pleasures... The personal desires, those kind of things might seem good. They're actually destructive. It's opposed to everything that God wants to bless our lives with. What looks wonderful for a season actually has fatal results. Now, this doesn't mean that desires aren't seductive. It doesn't mean they don't look good doesn't mean they don't tantalize us. doesn't mean we don't want them. Craig Brian Larson offers a a reminder of Satan's purpose in our desires. He he writes, Last week I, I had a simple reminder. I was at lunch with a dozen of my fellow workers. It was a warm Chicago day in early September, and we had the windows wide open. 
soon a bee found its way in and, after buzzing near me, landed on some food on the table. One of my colleagues, a few cheers away, took hold of an empty bottle of sparkling grape juice and put the mouth of the bottle near the bee. When she did, I expected the bee to to fly away for its own safety. Instead, however, without a moment's hesitation, the bee flew to the mouth of the bottle as if it had done this a hundred times before and climbed down inside the opening. Immediately, my colleague put a cap on the bottle and screwed it shut. The bee spent the rest of our party drinking at the bottom of the bottle. As far as I know, it was never released. What was my colleague's purpose in luring the bee into the bottle? Was she concerned about the bee wanting it to enjoy our hospitality and have plenty to drink? No. She dislikes bees. Her purpose was capture and control. The the bee had flown into a trap. When Satan incites us to indulge in the pleasures of the world in this manner, uh, in the manner that overstepped God's commands, what is his purpose? Is he concerned that we might miss out on good things? No. He despises humans. His purpose is capture and control. We must never forget that. Look at the text and uh, ask, is this not exactly the product of our desires? Uh, Again, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You, You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Satan has one goal in mind for causing people to disrupt the church. Destruction. And notice how this destruction plays out. It damages our relationships. Matt's preaching about relationships. It damages our relationships. Yes, in our homes, uh, on our jobs, uh, uh, everywhere, but especially in the church. It damages our relationships in the church. It turns the church into, from a place of blessing into a battle zone, a war front. Folks, when believers battle, everybody loses. The Lord, the church, the believers themselves. You remember what Paul wrote to the church of Galatia? He said, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Most notably, earthly wisdom, our desires, does one major thing. It tears a a huge rift in our relationship with God. Not only does it shred our relationships with one another, it it destroys the vitality of our relationships with each other. 
but most of all with the Lord. I hope you find this as sobering as I do. Now, you might ask where I get this specifically. Well, it's under the phrase, verse 4, you adulterous people. James is writing to believers. Remember this. He's writing to you and me. And he's saying, you adulterous people. Allowing uh, earthly wisdom to control turns our relationship with the Lord into an adulterous, dysfunctional disaster. And you know what? I doubt if this person even really realizes that's what happens. When they're battling with each other, they think what they're doing is right, I'm sure. But it's not right. And it also damages their relationship with the Lord. They're so caught up in themselves, their own little personal spiritual world, that they completely miss what's really happening. James is writing to believers, you and me within the church, and he's saying, are you faithful? Or are you adulterous? Are you uh, faithful to your Lord, or are you unfaithful? Remember, uh, James is telling us what it means to, to live a life of faith. Earthly wisdom makes you and me unfaithful to God. And we don't even realize it. We're so blinded by our selfish desires, we don't even realize it. Uh, again, James is pointed. He, he, he uh, is direct in what he says, following on in verse, verse 4. Uh, you adulterous people... Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes a what? An enemy of God. And all this goes back to that, those two words, your desires. Are your desires something uh, minor on the spiritual panorama? Innocent personal choices? Hey, after all, you're entitled to your choices, aren't you? What does Jesus say about this? Matt mentioned it last week, you remember? Remember? Uh, Matthew, Matthew 16, 24 and following. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What happened on the cross? Our desires were crucified. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? A minor glitch on the, on the spiritual panorama? Or something more. Something telltale. Something that ought to be convicting. Jesus came to save us from our desires. He came to save us for something more. The blessing of God. Not what we've been used to. 
Not the normal, not the natural. Something supernatural. Something different than what we are. Jesus sums up everything he has said for the past number of verses in uh, uh, the concluding sentence. This could be a a depressing situation. Everything we've talked about and how it's described and and how it plays out, it, it could be depressing. It's certainly destructive, but it could be depressing. But it's not because there is a, a ray of light that shines off this page. The last phrase of the section. I mentioned we would go there. The wisdom of the world, your desires, everything has preceded it. Come down to verse 6 where it says, God opposes the proud. Yes, that's uh, those who pursue, per, pursue earthly desires. They find themselves at odds with God. We just read it. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Make no mistake. James is piercingly clear in what he is saying. God opposes proud people. People who refuse to submit to his wisdom. People who who want their desires their way. People who refuse to submit themselves to the order of life that he has put in place. God opposes the proud. That's the bad news. But I said there's good news. There's a a ray of hope that shines off this, this page. God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. That's the the glorious ray of hope. God gives grace to the humble. The Lord despises those who live in contrast to his way, but he blesses those who seek him. He blesses those who put him first. He pours out his grace to those who tune their lives according to his truth. Have you ever heard the story of Robert Dollar? It's it's an amazing story. He was a young man who went to the Far East uh, to enter the import business. Early on, Robert Dollar was in the, the lobby of a huge, magnificent hotel in Hong Kong, and he was there to seek the advice of an old, experienced sea captain, seasoned by years in the Far East. The captain uh, said to Dollar, so you've come to the Orient to do business. Well, step into the bar and tell me about your plans. Dollar responded, "Uh, I'm sorry, I... I make it a practice never to enter such establishments. By the way, taverns today and taverns then were two different stories. Dollar said, I I never enter such establishments. The captain's face broke into an unbelieving grin. He says, wait a minute. (laughs) 
You really expect to be a success without taking your, your potential clients into a tavern for a drink? <laughs> if you do, the old captain laughs cynically. <laughs> God help you. Unshaken, Dollar replied, God will help me. And he was right. His trust in God brought fruit. Years later, Robert Dollar recalled this exact incident as he looked out the window on the 10th floor of the building that bore his name overlooking the San Francisco Harbor and a fleet of ships that were unloading cargo from the four corners of the world, his fleet of ships. You see, either you are for God or you are against God. There's no middle ground. Either you are serving him in his church in sync with his direction, or you're serving yourself through your own earthly desires. I want to ask you, are you aware of this principle? In the Lord you win, in and of yourself you lose. In and of your desires you lose. Most of us are not aware of this principle. You see, the Lord wins. He's ultimately going to prove himself victorious. Is your God a God who will overcome? Is your God a God who's going to win in the end? Or is he somebody who needs the help of your desires? What he says and how he goes about things just aren't quite right for you. So you inject your wants into the equation. An old homeless man uh, sat on the cement of a sidewalk on a busy street in a young pastor walked by. He looked down and saw the, the vagrant was reading the Bible, specifically the book of Revelation. He took a couple steps back and rather sarcastically he said, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And this old vagrant looked up uh, with eyes that just were wrinkled all over and but they uh, glowed in hope. And the old vagrant said, Jesus wins. How often do we miss that relevant bit of truth in our lives, in our approach to life? Jesus wins. And if Jesus wins, all those who oppose him lose. Those who live for themselves lose. Yes, they may get their way for a time being, but in the end, they lose. You see, the Lord gives his best to those who quit pushing their own agenda and seek to do his will his way. Jesus wins. But that leaves each of us with a question, doesn't it? Will he win in my life. Are you living a life of faith or a life of the flesh? 
Folks, the Lord despises the pursuits of the proud and selfish, but he blesses the humble, those who submit themselves to him. One evening in 1808, a man entered the office of Dr. James Hamilton in uh, Manchester, England. Dr. Hamilton was immediately struck by the, the melancholic exper- uh, appearance of this, this man. He inquired, are you sick? Yes, doctor, sick of a mortal malady. What malady? I'm frightened to death by the terror of the world around me. I'm, I'm depressed by life. I can find no happiness anywhere. Nothing amuses me. I have nothing to live for. If you cannot help me, I shall kill myself. Dr. Hamilton replied, the the malady is not mortal. You only need to get out of yourself. You need to laugh. You need to get some pleasure from life. What shall I do? The man asked. Go to the circus tonight and see Grimaldi, the clown. Grimaldi is the funniest man alive. He will cure you. A spasm of pain shot across the man's face. He said, Doctor, don't jest with me. I am Grimaldi. Where are you? like Grimaldi the Clown or like Robert Dollar. Lost in self or found in God. This applies in so many ways, doesn't it? It applies to our marriages, our homes. It applies to our jobs. It applies to our uh, leisure time. But let's stick to the text. What James is talking about in the church Where are you in your church? Like Grimaldi, lost in self, or like Robert Dollar, found in God? God despises those who pursue self, but blesses those who are humble humble enough to pursue him. Do you want a life of faith? It begins by letting God have his way in your life. Bow with me. Father, your word has come to bear on our lives. I pray we would seek your face. Where necessary, we would confess our sins, the sins of our own desires. And I pray we would reach up to you where we find your blessing, your goodness, your joy, and your peace, Father. And I pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.